0: Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey y'all, this is episode 152, and today I'm giving you an audio version of the epilogue of my latest book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. And in this epilogue, you will hear several reasons for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you're blessed by this episode, and if you are, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple Podcast channel, reclaiming the faith. Also, please consider checking out that book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. You can find it on Amazon uh, in digital paperback and audio forms, whatever would be the biggest blessing to you. And uh, if you are able please leave a rating and review. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency and you can find what we do on our Omega Frequency Live YouTube and Rumble channels and Omega Frequency. So please go check that out along with the latest episode of Ready With an Answer, which you can find on the Omega Frequency podcast channel. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 152. epilogue the resurrection quote after eight days his disciples were inside again and thomas with them jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said peace be with you then he said to thomas reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing." John chapter 20 verses 26 through 27. Christian martyrdom makes absolutely no sense without Jesus's resurrection. Dying while trying to kill your enemies carries logical weight if one is doing so for the perceived protection or betterment of your family or country. On the other hand, Testifying to the truth of the gospel by peacefully giving your life for the betterment of your enemies is the epitome of absurdity if Jesus did not rise from the dead. However, Jesus was raised from the dead, just like he promised, proving that everything he said is true, and we must now adjust our lives accordingly. Clement of Rome demonstrates how the first century followers of Jesus believed Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate attestation to his authority as Lord and Christ. Quote, "...the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ, having therefore received their orders." and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance by the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, unquote. Arguably, the two most prominent current authorities on the resurrection of Jesus are Gary Habermas and Michael Licona, who have co-written an over 700-page book on this subject called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. If you are a skeptic but are intellectually honest and earnestly desire to know the truth, read this book. It's long but easily digestible. In it, they employ a strategy known as the minimal facts approach. Habermas and Licona write, quote, While we hold that the Bible is trustworthy and inspired, we cannot expect the skeptical non-believer with whom we are dialoguing to embrace this view. So, in order to avoid a discussion that may divert us off of our most important topic, we would like to suggest that we adopt a minimal facts approach. This approach considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. One of the strengths of this approach is that it avoids debate over the inspiration of the Bible, unquote. As you read these five minimal facts about Jesus' resurrection, remember that virtually all non-Christian scholars attest to their veracity. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. Number three, Paul, the persecutor of the church, was suddenly changed. Number four, James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. Five, the empty tomb. Habermas and Likona summarize these five minimal facts in their appendix, quote, number one, Jesus's disciples sincerely believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Number two, external evidence and events support the authenticity of their belief in his resurrection the conversion of the church persecutor Paul, the conversion of the skeptic James, and the empty tomb. Number three, since no plausible opposing theories exist that can account for the historical facts, Jesus' resurrection is the only plausible explanation. Unquote. For the remainder of this epilogue, I want to offer one more proof to the resurrection of Jesus. In Luke 24, a bodily resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples, shows them his hands and feet, and eats some fish they give him. He then says in verses 42 through 44, quote, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, unquote. Luke continues in verses 45 through 46, quote, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, Some of you reading may already be thinking, wait a minute, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible? That seems like a logical argument, but the Bible isn't like any other book. The Bible boldly declares its trustworthiness by prophesying events to come with pinpoint accuracy. Chuck Missler writes, quote, there are no other religious books on planet earth that have the audacity to hang their track record on their ability to predict the future, Unquote. And just as I have already demonstrated that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied the suffering and death of the Messiah, they also prophesied his resurrection. Though there are certainly more, I would like to show you five ways the Old Testament either prophesied directly or foreshadowed the Messiah's resurrection. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 was written in the late 10th century BC by David, over 1,000 years before Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the second main passage of Scripture Peter uses in his defense of the gospel on the Feast of Pentecost, and explains how, though David wrote the psalm, he could not have been referring to himself. Peter addresses the crowd in Acts chapter 2 verses 25 through 32, quote, "For David says of him, "I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken." Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. "...this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Genesis chapter 1. Though its oral tradition goes back to the beginning of humanity, scholars believe that the book of Genesis was written somewhere between the 13th and 15th centuries BC. While the creation account in Genesis 1 is not meant to be understood like a biology textbook, it is designed to teach theology. We learn that God is the creator of all things, and everything he created was good. Speaking of the creation, Psalm chapter 19 verse 1 says, quote, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, unquote. Paul agrees in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, quote, "...for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made." The author of the book of Hebrews writes, "...God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things." through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, Unquote. If Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and creation declares the glory of God and reveals his eternal power and divine nature, is it possible that creation itself was designed to give evidence of the resurrection? First. Consider the order of events in Genesis chapter 1. Plants are created on day 3, and the earth brings forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. Yet, the sun is not created until day 4. How is that possible? This is an example of the way Genesis is seeking to tell us who created the world and why not so much how. This book is about theology, not biology. Thus, theologically speaking, we see that on the third day, God miraculously brings life out of the ground. Also, Genesis 1 has an interesting way of concluding each day's events. We read, quote, and there was evening and there was morning one day, unquote. Evening to morning, darkness to light, death to life, dying and rising. As stated in the first chapter of this book, the Passover event completely restructured Israel's calendar. Originally, the first month of the year was in the fall, around September We can see further evidence by the way the Old Testament refers to the rainy season in Israel, with the early rains beginning in the fall and the late rains occurring in the spring. Thus, the seasons follow the same pattern of each day, death to life. Creation declares the glory of the Lord our God, who was raised from the dead. Leviticus chapter 23. The book of Leviticus was written in the same time frame as Genesis. In Leviticus chapter 23, we are introduced to the seven annual feasts of the Lord. The Sabbath is included in the chapter, but I am not counting it since it is observed weekly. The Lord's annual feasts are as follows. Number one, Passover. Number two, Unleavened Bread. Number three. First fruits, number four, Pentecost, number five, trumpets, number six, the Day of Atonement, and number seven, tabernacles. Interestingly, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was murdered on Passover, placed in the tomb on unleavened bread, and resurrected on firstfruits. However, if he died at 3 p.m. on Friday and was resurrected before dawn on Sunday, that is nowhere close to three days. I discuss one way to resolve this issue in my previous book, New, Wineskins, and the Simple Words of Christ. Quote, it's easy to get flustered concerning the prospect of Jesus not being in the tomb for a full 72 hours. Admittedly, it frustrated and confounded me for many years. Even if Jesus had been immediately brought to the tomb after he breathed his last on Friday around 3 p.m. and then raised right around sunrise on Sunday, he would have only been buried for 39 hours at most. However, if we understand Jesus came to fulfill his feast days, it makes all the sense in the world that he said he would rise on the third day. Paul picks up this connection between Jesus, the resurrection, and firstfruits when he writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Twice in this passage, Paul calls Jesus the firstfruits. I've heard this section of Scripture taught innumerable times, and on each occasion the point was always that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith would be worthless. However, since Christ was raised, we can have supreme confidence in life and in death. Those points are true, but they miss one of the main points Paul is making. Christ is the first fruits of God, unquote. Daniel chapter 6 The book of Daniel was written over several decades of the 6th century BC While Daniel was living as an exile in Babylon What I want to do in this section is walk through the 6th chapter of Daniel And point out the overwhelming connections it has to the life, death, and resurrection to Jesus The original chapter from Daniel will be in italics And the connection to Jesus will be in bold print. As you read, please note that the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which correspond to Daniel chapter 6, do not flow in chronological order. Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. Then, this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of God. Unquote. Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. Pilate knows it is due to envy that the Jewish authorities handed Jesus over to him. John 18, 38. Pilate tells the Jewish authorities he finds no fault in Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish authorities say Jesus must die because he committed blasphemy in saying he is the Son of God. Daniel chapter 6, verses 6-9, through 9, quote, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O King, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57. The Jewish authorities conspire together to kill Jesus. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Quote, "Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed he entered his house now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously" Unquote. Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 through 46 Jesus knowing that his arrest is certain Goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, falls to the ground and prays three times to God. Daniel chapter six verse eleven. Quote, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Unquote. Matthew chapter twenty six verses forty four through fifty. A large crowd sent by the chief priests come to arrest Jesus while he is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Daniel chapter six, verses 12 through 13, quote, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Unquote. John chapter 18, verses 28 through 32, chapter 19, verse 7 and verse 12. The Jewish authorities bring Jesus before Pilate and accuse him of a capital crime. Daniel chapter 6 verse 14, quote: Then as soon as the king heard this, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Unquote. John chapter 19 verse 4 and verse 12. Pilate knows Jesus has been unjustly set up and repeatedly tries to rescue him from those conspiring against him. Daniel chapter six, verse 15, quote, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed, Unquote. John chapter 19, verse 12 and 15. The Jewish authorities again demand Jesus's death, stating that he has committed a crime directly against Caesar. Daniel chapter six, verse 16, quote, then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den, unquote. John chapter 19, verse 16, Pilate eventually relents and orders Jesus to be executed. Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, quote, The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel, unquote. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. A large stone is rolled over Jesus's tomb and sealed with Pilate's own signet ring. Daniel chapter six, verses 18 through 19, quote, "'The king went off to his palace "'and spent the night fasting, "'and no entertainment was brought before him, "'and his sleep fled from him. "'Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den, unquote. John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Jesus' disciples hurried to the tomb around dawn the third day. Daniel, chapter 6, verses 20 through 22, quote, When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime, John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 29. Second Corinthians chapter five verse fifteen and twenty one, Jesus resurrects from the dead, appears to his disciples and converses with them. Because Jesus was sinless, though he died, death could not keep its power over him. Daniel chapter six verses twenty three through twenty four. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones." Matthew chapter 27 verse 25, the Jewish authorities bring curses upon themselves and their families in seeking to have Jesus killed. Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, quote, then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Unquote. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and Revelation chapter 11, verse 5. Jesus' resurrection validates the message of the gospel and leads to the good news of his salvation being brought to the nations. Jesus receives a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Psalm 22. Like Psalm 16, Psalm 22 was written in the late 10th century B.C. by David over 1,000 years before Jesus' death and resurrection. It contains numerous links to Jesus' crucifixion, including statements he makes from the cross to those surrounding him. Though it begins with a statement of sorrow, it ends triumphantly with the one who was put to death ruling over the nations of the earth. Like the Daniel 6 passage, the original verses from Psalm 22 will be in italics and their connections to Jesus will be in bold print. Also, as you read, please note that the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which correspond to Psalm 22, do not flow in chronological order. Psalm 22, verse 1, quote, My God, my God! "'Why have you forsaken me?' Unquote. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. About 3 p.m., Jesus speaks these same words from the cross. Psalm 22, verses six through eight. Quote, "'But I am a worm and not a man, "'a reproach of men and despised by the people. "'All who see me sneer at me. "'They separate with the lip.'" They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him, unquote. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44. Those passing by and even the criminals being crucified with Jesus mock him by saying, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. Psalm 22, verses 14 through 15. Quote, "I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a postured. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death." Unquote. John chapter 19 verses 28 through 29. Jesus says he is thirsty and is given some sour wine just before saying his final words from the cross. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, quote, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, unquote. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18, and chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus is crucified. Psalm 22, verse 18, quote, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, unquote. John chapter 19, verses 23 through 35, The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus divide his clothing and cast lots for his tunic. Psalm 22, verses 19 through 20 and 22 through 24, quote, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him but when he cried to him for help he heard Unquote. hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 and acts chapter 2 verses 23 through 24 though jesus is scourged crucified and buried his prayers for deliverance are heard, and he is resurrected with an incorruptible body, defeating the power of sin and death. Psalm 22, verses 27 through 30, quote, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nation's. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship all those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him, it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Unquote. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 10: A great multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worship before the throne of God, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Psalm 22, verse 31. Quote, They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born, that He has performed it. Unquote. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Knowing that all things had already been accomplished, Jesus cries out, It is finished. In a sense, saying, I did it. To fulfill the numerous prophecies of the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, humbled himself and chose to be born into a poor family through a questionable birth. He chose to be misunderstood by family and friends. By the Spirit of God, he stayed faithful in the most intense of temptations. He stayed faithful to his Father through insults, death threats, attempted murders, betrayal, and desertion of friends. He stayed faithful to his calling through being spit on, beaten, scourged, and crucified. Even while being tortured on the cross, he remained faithful forgave his enemies, and fulfilled scripture. For this reason, God raised him from the dead, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." God has been telling us for thousands of years that the Messiah would suffer for our sins and be raised from the dead. Jesus said the same thing numerous times during his ministry, and since he kept his promise concerning the resurrection, regardless of your questions, he is also trustworthy for your regeneration, his second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the restoration of all things. So, how should we respond? If you are not currently a follower of Jesus Christ, the scriptures call you to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and earnestly confess before others that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Baptism is the primary way that we identify ourselves with Jesus' death and resurrection. The early Christians would fast and pray with the one who was seeking to be baptized, and the candidate would earnestly spend that time repenting of his or her sins. During the ceremony, the candidate would renounce allegiance to Satan and would pledge his or her allegiance to the Lord Jesus I have found that one of the best analogies to baptism is marriage. There is a renunciation of the single life and any romantic ties to members of the opposite sex. Then a pledge is given to honor this person above everyone else through anything life can bring one's way. It is forever through whatever. And like putting the ring on your spouse's finger, Baptism is the sign of your new eternal commitment to Jesus and your new forever family. If you are already a follower of Christ, the Lord's Supper is designed to function like a weekly renewal of your wedding vows to Jesus until He returns. The ultimate faithful witness went to war on our behalf and gave His body and blood to bring us safely into His kingdom. Each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we prepare ourselves to enter into the same spiritual struggle to use our bodies and blood to demonstrate to the world the truth of the gospel. Cyprian writes about the Lord's Supper to believers undergoing persecution in A.D. 250, quote, we should be prepared and armed for the struggle which the enemy announces to us. As the Eucharist is appointed for this very purpose, that it may be a safeguard to the receivers, it is needful that we may arm those whom we wish to be safe against the adversary with the protection of the Lord's abundance. How do we make them fit for the cup of martyrdom if we do not first admit them to drink in the church the cup of the Lord by the rite of communion, Unquote. Additionally, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 26, quote, "For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Unquote. Thus, in taking the Lord's supper, we not only renew our unconditional commitment to Jesus and His church, but also remember that He is coming again to set all things right and transform us to be like Him, eternally communing with our bridegroom. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not just symbols, they are as serious as marital vows. And with them, we pledge our loyalty to the victorious risen lamb who is coming again to bring us to himself for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others in life, death, and in resurrection to everlasting life. Quote, it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself unquote 2 timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13
1: They condemned my friend Then haunted me down I fled to the countryside Kneeling both day and night But I saw the end And welcomed them in A banquet for enemies Waking redemption's need. Like that bedroom fire, the burn me alive. You called me to play the man. Give me the grace to stand. Like that bedroom fire, the burn me alive. I found you never let me down. Let before they I still I found